Hello, welcome to Liberal Europe, a podcast on ideas, politics and all things European, European Liberal Forum project. My name is Leszek Jaszczewski and I really hope that you enjoyed the show. My name is Leszek Jaszczewski and I have a great pleasure today to uh, host Irem Gucieri, who is an associate professor of economics and public policy at the Blavatnik School of Government, where we are currently sitting, and the governing body fellow of St. Antonin's College. Irem is also an international research fellow of the Oxford University Center for Business Taxation and affiliate of the CES IFO Network in Public Economics. Irem, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you very much for having me. We are discussing uh, two weeks ahead of uh, Turkish elections. You will listen to this podcast two days before Turkish elections. And I think it's actually extremely important that we discuss the state of Turkish economy. I think it's one of the defining factors also of the outcome of the of the results of elections. We're not going into the political details. We already discussed Turkey before. But I wanted to start before we get into the, well, current crisis and post-earthquake uh, um, reconstruction. Can you, because Turkey has been, it has like phenomenal growth in, in, in the recent years. I think it's been like 15 years of, of constant growth. And so it is now, I think, the ninth economy in the world with the parity purchase uh, taken into account. So can you tell us more about this, um, the foundation of economic success of Turkey in the, in the recent years? Sure. I mean, I think, so we had two big crises in 99 and 2000. And the aftermath of that period was a period of reconstruction, rebuilding the banking system, rebuilding the economy, a rapid pace of structural reform as well. And at the time, um, the focus was on recovery from the crisis, but we're talking about more than 20 years ago now. It was complete devastation in an economic sense, but then that gave the opportunity to just rebuild, especially the banking system, but also takes you know, slow steps towards a bunch of structural reforms that help the private sector to thrive. Um, early in that time, there was an IMF program. After that, Turkey graduated and, and um, you know, found its own path. But all that period was focusing on um, reconstruction, building investor confidence. So there was, in the aftermath of that period, there was rapid um, sort of inflow of FDI, as well as, you know, domestic um, developments, domestic investors kind of having more confidence, they could see the future. Of course, things changed quite a bit after especially the coup attempt. Um, and um, there, there was much higher uncertainty. And as we come to today, as we go into the elections, I can say that there are three defining characteristics of the current Turkish economy. One is the earthquake. And I know, you know, we want to maybe talk about the long, uh, long run and what happened in the past, but the earthquake has changed and will change the country profoundly. Its economy, its politics, you name it, in every sense, the country has had this devastating disaster and it's going to have a long lasting impact on the future. The second thing is persistent inflation. So really chronic inflation at the moment that the um, country is battling and the individuals and the cost of living. And the third uh, is third characteristic right now is noise and uncertainty. So if you're an investor in Turkey, if you're, you know, the B 
be it foreign or domestic, you know, you know that even if you've been in Turkey for a really long time, the kind of uncertainty that you're facing right now is really unprecedented. And if you told me, you know, oh, what 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 do you think is going to happen in two days? What are we going to find out at, at the ballot box? Despite all the polling and all the different um, reports, I would say it's the roll of a dice because hmm. it's very hard to tell right now um, based on how, you know, what sort of news outlets you consume, you know, what sort of news you consume, you're going to have a completely different perspective and a projection on um where the election outcome might be. So if you're investing in Turkey, you're going to have two completely separate scenarios that you will prepare for. And if you don't, like if you, you know, just say, oh, I'm going to, I think it's going to be scenario A or it's going to be scenario B, you're going to, you know, it, it's a very, um, it's a very big bet. You So you have to, what you have to do is you have to say, I'm going to plan for, um, you know, the current government continuing or I'm going to plan for the opposition taking over and they take you to completely different trajectories, both with very high degrees of uncertainty, even after you know the result. I think one of the characteristics of democracy is that you actually don't know the outcome of the election. So I think it's a good sign. Um, <laughs> let's let's go one by one uh, about all, all these three uh, factors you, you mentioned. So. To just get things into perspective, the the um, amount of, of destruction of of the of the earthquake, one hundred ten thousand square kilometers, the size of Bulgaria, uh, I think has been destroyed. Three hundred thousand buildings. That's what I the data I found from the Economist um, uh, journalist uh, Piotr Zaleski, uh, and two hundred million tons of rubble. For Polish uh, listeners, it's ten times the size of uh, rubble in Warsaw after after the uprising, Warsaw uprising in the Second World War. $104 billion, I found a figure of, of cost of reconstruction. I mean, I will try to check with with, with you. Yep. And Turkish uh, GDP, it's, uh, it's, it's eight times bigger, it's 819 billion. Um, so it, it is, it's a staggering numbers. And maybe uh, you, you said that, that the earthquake changed profoundly the, the Turkey and Turkish economy. So uh, maybe let's start, how I mean, and of course Turkey is famous for this construction uh, industry, but I think it is beyond well, basically any states to all uh, uh, Turkish states with relatively low savings and high deficits to, to to rebuild the economy just by its own quickly. I think Erdogan mentioned like one year. It seems completely like impossible. So, how is the reconstruction going, and how the earthquake? changed Turkey. Sure. Okay. So shall we get back to the numbers first? Because you have big numbers there in terms of how many houses were demolished yeah. and all of that. I'm going to double them or at least, you know, 50% increase the um, projections. So recent um, report from a Turkish economic um, research foundation says that the uh, reconstruction will probably kind of spread over five years and the cost is going to some to something like 150 billion US dollars. Now, the um, again, you know, thinking about geography, I know that the size of the region affected was about the size of all of Austria. Hmm. We have about 20 million citizens affected by the earthquake. Everyone that I know have lost a loved one or had really um, or know someone who lost a loved one in the country so that actually 
puts in perspective for a country of 85 million population, how large the area was and, and the size of destruction. So according to um, the report, actually the number of houses that were either you know, destroyed or were severely damaged, so you cannot get back into your house to pack up and get your stuff, it's, it's around uh, 650,000. So I think, yeah, I, perhaps the numbers that you've given about completely you know, destroyed houses is about accurate. Yeah. And then on top of that, there is a large chunk of houses that were severely damaged that you can't go back in. There is about a million or more that is um, medium or uh, low damage type houses. So they will need some repair in the, in the medium um, to long term. So this actually means that the scale of reconstruction and the need for public funds to actually support this reconstruction is, you know, way above the uh, capacity of any, you know, any government. But of course, given the fragility of the Turkish public finances uh, right now and the volatility and, you know, already we didn't go into the earthquake with a very strong economy and that actually generates um, um, a big challenge for the Turkish government and the policymaker, whichever party comes into power, they are going to be facing this immense challenge um, looking ahead. Um, again, one of the, num you know, just, just one uh, last takeaway number is that um, the projected growth relative to a no earthquake scenario is, you know, about 1.2 percentage points lower than it would have been. So there are multiple reasons for it. And we can talk about why the earthquake is going to have such a big impact on the Turkish economy. But it means a really serious um, hit on growth as well. And what was the response of, of the state in the EFCO? How can you assess the state institutions and uh, how is the reconstruction? I mean, it's only been a couple of months, so it's perhaps hard to assess. But there have been accusations of corruption and inefficiencies. How U.S. economists see the response of the state institutions? Right. Um, so this was a massive earthquake that would challenge any government's resources and capacity to um, to respond. There were criticisms on you know the way the government responded, and and perhaps that's beyond you know the um, topic of discussion for this podcast, but it. Seems that so. So let me let me take us back to 1999 when we had the um, Marmara earthquake, which was really devastating, but at a smaller scale, smaller magnitude than this earthquake. And um, after that earthquake, actually, Turkey had a lot of institutions put in place to um, respond to disasters, especially earthquakes. So that means. Um, that means that there were some procedures in place to respond, but was there, you know, an alarm system, an early, um, you know, warning system? There wasn't. Was there, you know, rapid response? Was there, you know, like old rescue teams there in place in a matter of few hours? That was, um, you know, not the case. So that that was part of the uh, criticism that the government got in terms of looking at reconstruction. Right now, a heap of people are living in tents. So it's, I mean, I, I think it's at the moment really transitioning to a reconstruction uh, period. 
but we can't say that we're in a reconstruction period right now. We're in this kind of intermediate period where you have a lot of people living in tents or trying to find housing, trying to move cities, go to Ankara or Istanbul or neighboring towns, um, Adana and other places to find, um, you know, some temporary work, some temporary housing, but we're not at a point where there is rapid reconstruction just yet. Before the earthquake, everyone was talking about the hyperinflation in Turkey. And I think for this year, it's around 50%. Um, it used to be much bigger and people were also doubting the official numbers. Can you give us, I mean, and of course we know the kind of unorthodox um, idea about, about where inflation comes from, coming from Turkish presidents. Can you give us a background? Because it seems almost kind of impossible for the quite developed economy to live for such a long time with such a high levels of, of hyperinflation. So the origins of hyperinflation and the impact on everyday lives on, uh, of people, can you, can you give us, can you give us um, the insight into this? Right. So the Turkish economy is um, very import dependent. It has a high um, trade deficit. It is a big and uh, big economy with a lot of you know industrial output, but a lot of inputs are still imported as well. There's a lot of agricultural imports as well. And if we looked back at the um, you know Russian invasion of Ukraine, actually Turkey was one of the biggest countries that was to be affected by the um, by the grain shortages that emerged from this crisis. So already the international dynamics were um, moving Turkey towards a um, situation where there was going to be inflation, as, as in many countries around the world right now, you know, energy dependency, um, import dependency and non-energy items as well. So there is already an inflationary pressure. And then we have a um, central bank that actually is not fully independent. And that makes, um, and, and that is focused on keeping interest rates low in a high inflationary environment, right? So that's kind of an unorthodox um, or a heterodox economic policy saying that if we keep interest rates low, perhaps we're going to um, generate new investment. Of course, in developing countries, the kind of monetary policy transmission mechanism doesn't work um, in the way that conventional uh, economic theory suggests. So there are always, you know, leaders, um, policy leaders always look for different uh, policy options, different ideas. Um, but but saying that keeping interest rates low to combat inflation, of course, does not um, does not exactly work. I mean, does it, does it work anywhere? Because I'm just curious. Is it like completely crazy? Or the, or the, you can find some economic theory supporting that. Yeah, let's survive the high inflation and low interest rates, and we will come back to lower. You could say that in a situation where uh, if you said let's keep interest rates low, allow investors to borrow at low rates and then come and invest in our country. Because even if you could also say we're a developing country, even if we increase our interest rates, um, the market rates are in, in different places, you know, like the market rates don't necessarily follow the policy rate. 
And um, that generates like that, that's that break in the monetary policy transmission mechanism might mean that things don't exactly work the same way as they do in a developed country. We don't have you know higher interest rates dampening the um, rest of the economy, but and and also curbing curbing investment. So everybody wants more investment, right? So people who want high interest rates, people who want low interest rates, everybody wants more investment. Where do we get investment? We get investment in stable um, situations where business can see at least a few months ahead. If we have an unorthodox um, economic policy that says we're going to keep interest rates low, at the same time, we're unable to manage, say, exchange rate fluctuations, we're unable to manage business expectations, then we're going to be unable to generate investment. That means the unorthodox thinking fails in achieving its goal of more investment. If we go the orthodox way and say, let's increase interest rates to fight inflation, and then let's try to uh, get investment, that's again a rough ride. It's not going to be like how, how many percentage points of rise in interest rates do you need to combat inflation in this hyperinflationary environment? That is going to be the challenge if policymakers decide to go in that path. And if you know, if the current government continues, I think they're going to follow a low interest policy. That's there's already some commitment to it. But if you had um, say the opposition comes and then says, okay, let's kind of follow more orthodox policies. And then the central bank decides to follow that. Um, we might see uh, the central bank still having difficulties curbing inflation. But perhaps, depending on how the central banks um, and the government's commitment to economic policies are communicated, that might clear the way. Um, dampen uncertainty, dampen the noise, and bring some investors in. But that's a big if, right? So there's a lot more to sort out in the Turkish economy to clear the path for a lower uncertainty, higher investment environment. So it's not just the central bank lever telling us you know, higher or low interest rates. It's actually much beyond that now because we have so many other variables um, in the economy that affect how investment uh, trajectories are going to sh be shaped. Trying to go into the more kind of micro level, so this everyday lives of people. I know you've been based out of Turkey for quite some time, but I'm sure you've got a good impression how it affects everyday lives of people, this unpredictability yeah. of the prices that they need to I don't know, perhaps operates not by Turkish lira, which last, I read, 450% in the last five years. Uh, yeah. how, how is like everyday life in a hyperinflation country in such a long term actually possible? How, how, how do people, what are the strategies? What, how people behave? It's actually, so we talked about the inflation numbers and we can, you know, we can take the basket that the um, Turkstat, Turkish Statistics Institute uses and then look at that, we have about 50% inflation. If you look at food inflation, you go up to around 70%. And then the uh, Istanbul Chamber of Commerce has 
a um, working person's cost of living index. Again, that's quite high at around uh, perhaps 70%. And, and this has a very big impact on day-to-day -day lives of people, of course. There are some, at, at the moment, we're in a pre-election period. So there were some boosts that are coming from things like a rise in minimum wage. There were, um, there was a sort of a generous uh, retirement or pension um, reform that allows some part of the population to afford the higher prices a bit more. But of course, it creates a lot of um, difficulty on a day-to-day -day basis for Turkish households. If you go to the supermarket every day, you see that the prices, um, you know, that the, the, the supermarket staff is trying to change the prices to match what's going on in the economy on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and, you know, I've been living abroad, but I go back often. I've seen supermarket staff um, just changing the tags really every single day I went there. And it, it, it is very hard. People are really struggling to, um, to get by on a day-to-day -day basis. I was thinking that for some people, we, we were like a European podcast, but people might consider why Turkey, state of Turkish economy and state of Turkish politics is so important for, for Europeans as well. Turkey is a big trading partner of, of, of many European countries. How do you see the importance of regional, but perhaps also, well, world uh, uh, role of, 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 of Turkish unpredictability and state of economy? How would you say the, the impact of what's happening right now in Turkey on the rest of the world? And uh, Turkey is a big investor in certain countries in the region. Can you give us a, a kind of very broad picture why Turkey and in which aspects it's, it's, it's important, especially in economic aspects for, for, for Europe and, sure. and the rest of the world? It's a huge country. I think size matters in economic relationships. It's very integrated to European trade. It's part of the customs union. Um, and Europe is its biggest export market and has a very um, big cultural and um, human, you know, social relationship with Europe, a longstanding relationship. So what's happening in turkey also it borders greece and bulgaria um so it it is straight directly affected affected um affecting the um, trading relationships and the trade balances in europe of course currently europe has its own challenges to deal with in an economic sense so there is you know um there is the energy crisis there's the cost of living crisis of course going into summer uh, this all feels a little bit lighter, a little bit dampened, but but it is there and we can't ignore these. So I think it has an amplifying effect really on um, on the rest of Europe. It's going to have an adverse effect on um, European trade relationships. And getting uh, close to, to, to the end of the podcast, I want to ask you two more questions. One would be, if you were asked, uh, by the future governments to give advice, what should be these macroeconomic reforms for the country after the elections? What would be the three main points or issues that you would consider crucial for macro stability? And uh, what would be your advice 
um, for, for the next government of Turkey right. to stabilize the country. So I would, I, I'll tweak that a bit and say I would focus on structural reform. So it doesn't have to be macro policies because there is a, a, a rule book about what to do on macro policy. I would, I'm a scholar, I'm an academic, I would follow the rule book. Um, I, but the most important thing is clarity of messaging and saying, okay, here's our plan looking into the future. Here is our um, reform agenda. And here is our earthquake reconstruction agenda. And that's, so those three things are going to, I think, build investor comp confidence, increase investor appetite, and hopefully curb this, you know, just wild volatility that's taking place in the Turkish economy. So I would say on the macro side, probably follow the rule book, but on the structural reform side, there would be um, quite a lot to do. And on the messaging side, the clarity as well. Um, to end with, how, how do you see the future of Turkey in like long term? When you think like 10 years ahead, where, where, where do you see the country? That's a very good question. And perhaps I'll loop back to the first things that we said. You know, the outcome of the election is going to be very, very, you know, is going to lead to two very distinct paths. I think both will feature lots of uncertainty on the economic side. So it would be really almost, um, you know, I, I, would, I would need this sort of a magic sphere to talk about 10 years ahead. It, it is, it's a country with very high potential, very skilled labor force, uh, very open to change, extremely plugged into international markets. So the country has, at its core, massive potential. And, and it's, even though I see a lot of uncertainty in the next year or two years or three years ahead, we have to focus on rebuilding post-earthquake and we have to focus on really leveraging the fantastic skilled labor force in the country, its relationships with, um, you know, its close proximity in terms of geography. And we have to focus on rebuilding no matter what path we have in the one, one two or three years ahead. We have to focus on these benefits and these um, really advantages of the country. And I believe and trust and hope that in 10 years time, we can get back to this path of rapid growth um, and reconstruction because growth on its own is not going to trickle down to the whole economy, but to really have a um, environment and economy where you know, social mobility is high and where no matter where you come from in the country that you can get a good education and you can get a good job and you can contribute to that growth as well. There is a big hope for Turkey. Erem Gucheri, thank you so much for being with us today. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's all for today for, from Liberal Europe. Um, please tune in for Ricardo Silvers next week. Until two weeks, goodbye. You can find this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And if you like what we are doing and want to help spreading the liberal values, please give us a five-star review and share with your friends.